Hello everybody, Jay, now June, from the Game Crime Show here, and before we start this new episode, I have some cool news to announce. Over the last year or so, I've been slowly putting together a little game company co-op called Poor Skeleton Games. You can find us online at poorskeletongames.com. We make fun, fast card games that are easy to learn, hard to master, and only 20 bucks a piece. You can pre-order our first two games, SHU Time Clash, a superhero card fighting game, and Partners in Crime, a murder mystery memory game, right now. And your pre-order helps us fund the first print run of the game. We've thrown some cool bonuses in there for early adopters too. Once again, that website is poorskeletongames.com. And without further ado, Sonic Mania. If you've got a Genesis, or a Game Gear, or a Sega CD. There are new Sonic games coming. As you'll see on Sonic Mania Day, they're uh, really fast. Everybody and welcome to episode six of Game Prime's Gold Medal Game Sonic Mania. My name is Jay. As always, I am joined by my co-host and partner in crime, Mike Bachman. Hello to the crowds. For this episode, we are being joined by a special guest. Some may call him Chicago's favorite son. Others wouldn't. <laughs> we call him Sid Menon. Sid Menon. I feel like most people's reaction to "Am I Chicago's favorite son?" would be. Yes, or who is that? <laughs> yeah, well, you would think that Chicago's favorite son would be the one that literally keeps the earth warm, but, you know, whatever. <laughs> I guess the most creative output I do is on Twitter. I've had some oh. minorly popular tweets. I'm not even going to say that that happens very often. I had one tweet just completely fly out of control, and Twitter in London like <laughs> sent one of my tweets on a card to a guy who does, like, football commentary or something. I've... <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> Yeah, because his tweet was like, I can't believe, insert British name here, gave, insert British team here, something on the ninth. I don't, I don't know about soccer very well, especially British soccer lingo, but uh, they gave him a card and my tweet was on it. And one of my friends said, congratulations on whatever this is. And I'm like, I don't know what this is. And they gave a reply to the tweet, I don't know why they gave you my tweet on the card, but uh, congratulations, I guess. And that person didn't react to it at all. So I'm like, okay, all right. Am I am I breaking rules here as someone who's had one tweet take off on Twitter? Well, first, you're Chicago's favorite son, <laughs> but also renowned uh, soccer mystery expert. I feel like you could be introducing a lot of volatility into the British Footy League, and I'm excited to see where it goes. Otherwise, in terms of actual creative output, pretty uh, pretty intermittent. Like if you here, I have a podcast and think I don't have time to listen to a podcast. Do you have two to four free hours a year? <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> because you're speaking my language. <laughs> I host and uh, edit a podcast called We Thought About Games. I have on guests who played the game we're talking about of their own volition. It's not a games club style podcast where we play it for the podcast because that affects how mm -hmm. you, you interact with the media. You know, like, oh, I heard this about it from people when we said we're going to do this game. Like, no, like, I bought Nier because I'm like, I like caveat games, which in retrospect, I'm not really sure why I thought <gasps> that. <laughs> I'm like, they're pretty good, I guess, sometimes. Like, I played Win Back 2 and thought it was okay. 
One thing I really like about your show, Sid, I mean, it's it's a longer show, right? Like, generally speaking, it's two to three hours, somewhere around there. Yeah, the shortest episode is still two and a half hours. So I, I don't know if anyone in the audience could tell, but I have a certain amount of disdain for gamer culture, like a lot, <laughs> a lot of it to the point where, like, I don't really like seek out podcasts or YouTube shows or anything. That's not really my thing. I really like Sid's show because it feels much more human than you're usually getting when you're talking about video games is a lot about personal experience, uh, a lot about like what individual people get out of playing their games. And it made me think just like I, I listened to your episode on Mega Man X4, a game that I don't like. I just I don't like playing it. I love Mega Man to death. I've played all of them until the wheels fall off. That's one of my least favorites. I sat through the whole thing. And at the end, I, I felt like I was seeing through other people's perspective as to why they might be drawn towards it. So I thought it'd be really interesting to have you in as we focus on a single game. And when I gave you the list of topics, you seem to have pointed at Sonic Mania as, oh, hey, I've got something there. Yeah. I mean, it grew out of the Sonic fan game community, and that mm. was like one of the first communities part of it. I didn't participate, but I did, you know, go on Sonic fan games headquarters and see what was up pretty regularly. Even back when I was on a, you know, dial-up 28.8K modem. 45 minutes to see that picture of uh, Sonic the Hedgehog with green hair. His name was Manic the Hedgehog. <laughs> I've been in a lot of like retro emulation circles when I was younger, especially in dial-up days. And Sonic was something I never really engaged with. It just wasn't my thing, right? But the Sonic community has seemed to be unique within video game communities, let's just say. I think one thing that stands out is they have a whole lot of passion. Is that a thing? Am I speaking out of term here? Oh, no. I mean, I always picked up on that. I mean, when I was younger, if you said, do they have a lot of passion? I'd be like, I don't know. But like, yeah, they do. <laughs> yeah okay. maybe a thing I, I noticed subconsciously, let's say, giving me lots of credit. What fascinated you? My brother and I got a Sega Genesis for Christmas. And I think it was when it was new. And it came packed with Sonic the Hedgehog 1 in it. And I remember the next day, because we did a bunch of other stuff on the day we actually opened our presents. Uh, I woke up and my brother said, like, hey, come downstairs. We got it set up. And I came downstairs and the game was already started. It was at Green Hill Zone. There was no plugging it in, turning it on, seeing the title screen. Like, I just went downstairs and there were video games and it was Sonic the Hedgehog. <laughs> <laughs> it just kind of appeared in your living room. A, a holy gift. A basement, please. My parents didn't know what it would do to the living room TV. These video games. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Mike, that's not, that, that sounds charged. <laughs> That key that just keyed me into like uh to like a a, a feeling of rage from my childhood <laughs> that I like I had forgotten with like no you can't play video games on this TV because it's gonna it's gonna cause burn in or like whatever and sometimes they were right but like you know you gotta live on the edge and also TVs back then were like absolute nuclear microwaves that fry your brain and your eyeballs so you know of course there's gonna be some feedback. That's why we love My CRT, CRT so much. is the reason I'm sterile. <laughs> I'm going to say the opposite happened to me. <laughs> Thanks to Sonic the Hedgehog. <laughs> Mike, did you have a, a baby Sonic experience? The only thing I can really like, point to that's going to make me sound dumb as shit <laughs> is that I was at... Um, my family was really into horses. I was not. Mm. And I, uh, they had a Nintendo... Like the, the place that we were at somebody else's house and they were like doing shit with horses and I was like boring and they were like, well, do you want to go in and play Nintendo? And it's like, 
whatever that is, it's got to be better than this. And so <laughs> we went in, we went inside and I have this very vivid memory of like having no idea what video games were, not knowing what a, what a, a N- Nintendo was for sure. And seeing, you know, those like vent covers that you put over like floor vents, like the, the kind of like quarter circle, uh, clear plastic mm-hmm. that kind of like ang- angles, angles the heat into the center of the room. I, my dumbass asked if that was a Nintendo as we're like walking into the house. She's just like, no. Did you have a Genesis as a kid at all? No, I had a Super Nintendo. My buddy had a Genesis and we had a regular swapping agreement. Mm, oh, that's good. But... You didn't have console wars. <laughs> no. Well, I wanted a Genesis and he wanted a Super Nintendo and our parents like Maybe we were switched at birth. That's the only way that I can explain what happened. Um, they just got us the wrong ones. Well, considering you didn't know the Genesis sound chip was good until you were like 34. Like, <laughs> that's true. That's true. We, we had that. Uh, the, my buddy had that that wrong model. And, oh. and uh, like the games that I was using to like to, to gauge that were like road rash 2, which on a like, has a good soundtrack, but on a bad Genesis. chip. Yeah. Oh, it sounds like somebody left their like left their electric shaver on in the bathroom. <laughs> I myself did not have a Genesis and only uh, got to play Genesis games through emulators. Basically, to me, there wasn't you know it was like approaching a bookstore or a library or something. Here's four hundred billion games you've never played before, and oh my god, they work on your computer. Also, a thing I want to a note for any of the the really young folks in the audience is I don't know how widespread this was. It might have just been where I grew up in the Midwest suburbs, but Hmm. I I feel like a lot of people didn't call it the Sega Genesis. They called it the Sega. Yes. Which makes me think they had trouble pronouncing Genesis, which in retrospect (laughs) reflects really poorly on them because the majority of them were Christians. (laughs) (laughs) Like, yeah, I can't pronounce it. I didn't even read the Hindu text. (laughs) So I guess it's the pod calling the kettle black here, but I don't know. It's not like Genesis is hard to say in the typical Midwest accent. Those are those are vowels that just fly out of your nose. I my entire childhood, like I I got irrationally angry whenever somebody would like call something by by the wrong name. So like hearing holding up a thing of Hawaiian punch and saying, Whose high C is this? And just like being filled with rage. I'm like, like, you're the one teaching us to read. It's on the bottle. We're coming together today to talk about a game, Sonic Mania, uh, released 2017. And the reason why we're talking about it is because it's got a relatively unique history. It's a game that was not necessarily made by the Creative Brain Trust at the Service Games Corporation, but instead was largely headed by people who had had deep roots within existing fan communities. So today we're going to talk about this game, why it works, why people seem to have a good opinion of it, as well as what we can do by looking at retro games and approach our own thoughts on nostalgia. So before we get too deep, I would just like to say, if you haven't had a chance to play Sonic Mania, it's available on every console available on the market now, I'm pretty sure. It is cheap, and if you enjoy a a nice, pretty game with a great soundtrack, it's just a good game. I really enjoy it. If you haven't tried it, please try it. Seconded. Yep. That's a third. That's we're basically Sonic Tails and Knuckles here.
Let's move on to our discussion then, where we are going to introduce you to a concept known as ROM hacking. It's hard to understand the significance of a game like Sonic Mania without understanding a concept known as ROM hacking. ROM hacking is a very broad term, but I would say it vaguely is used to define someone making a modification to an existing game for the purposes of changing the content of how the game plays. There's a lot of questions involved with ROM hacking because you can do a billion different things, right? Technically speaking, if, if you use like an old cheat device, like a Game Genie, you're ROM hacking by changing some code. But for the vast majority of what we're talking about, we're talking about games that are dumped from a cartridge or a disc onto some sort of virtual image on a computer hard drive. So if you had a, a cartridge, you would get a, a Frankenstein cartridge slot with a USB connector on it. This is also a way that you could, say, back up your own game collection if you had the yen to do such a thing. Have either of you ever dinked around with, like, ripping a, a disc or dumping a cartridge or something? I actually have recently. It's when I soft-modded my, um, soft my 3DS. I, I never did it with the old 16-bit systems, mm. but... Um, there's there's software written for 3ds where you where you run it on the console and it'll dump the contents of your cartridge to the sd card because i've got a significant amount of 3ds games and it's just nice to not have to pull them out all the time sure sure how about you said any experience uh no in fact i think the only instance where i really felt i needed to rip a disc of something has been since i've had my current computer set up which does not have a cd drive at all mm. Uh, and it's just one game. I have a it's SD Gundam G Century for the PlayStation 1 because oh. I normally am okay with, you know, finding, a, a, let's say, a different totally legal method which gets me these images without me ripping them from my own discs. All the rips I can find of it are in a format that doesn't play well with emulators because yeah. I have a portable uh, emulation handheld, which you might have heard about on our previous episode of Game Look Times. at this guy! Holy shit! <laughs> he does more work than I do. <laughs> <laughs> to put it on there, it's not in a format that plays well with that, so it might just be easier for me to rip my own copy. That's the only case I can think of. And, you know, with the EMU Paradise getting nuked by Nintendo, or I should say the threat of Nintendo, it didn't happen actually, but they, they felt <laughs> it in the air. Um, they exist in internet purgatory. It's like the most fascinating website of all time. <laughs> without that, there are certain games that I own or have owned that it would just be easier to rip than having to scour the internet and go through all the dead links to find it. So another question would be, what would be the difference between a ROM hack and like a fan game? There are people that, for instance, make their own Mega Man games, make their own Mario games, make their own Sonic games. But a ROM hacking is slightly different. ROM hacking implies that you're making a modification to an existing game. And the real question here that, that we always like to touch on when we get too deep into the woods is the legality of everything. And you know what? We found another gray area here. Go figure. How did I do that? It turns out that ROM hacking is actually in an extremely nebulous place legally. Due to a 1992 court case where Nintendo took the creators of the Game Genie to court, over illegally modifying software, the U.S. patent system actually ruled in favor of Galoob, meaning that it was okay for cheat devices to stay on the market and essentially legalizing the modification and distribution of modified code. As you might imagine, big tech companies and game companies do have issues with 
that sort of legal ruling. And you can see over the last couple years, a lot of companies really pushing the border there. As of right now, what we're talking about, these fan modification patches, these these games that are being made are legally in the clear. When you say in the clear, like that's a big reason why it's much easier to find the patches for the ROMs that you then have to patch yourself mm-hmm. than it is to find like the pre-patched versions because they're they're distributing their own code, not the original code of the of the game. You got it. Another good example would be like that Mario 64 port to Windows machines recently. Mm-hmm. To everything, really. They ported it to Switch also, which is, is funny because they now have a better Mario 64 port on Switch than Nintendo does. <laughs> this kind of gray area is really weird. And, and I have some examples of it not always going well. But that's not what we're really here to talk about today, because I think this game feels like a real gem in the rough. Sonic ROM hacking has been popular forever, like since since Sonic existed, basically. You can see the formation of these fan communities coming up in the late 90s, early 2000s, entirely based around uh, ROM hacking Sonic the Hedgehog. Sonic wasn't the only game, but there seemed to be something special about Sonic. These are the communities you were running in, right? It's something I, I was keeping up with here and there, but mm. before ROMhacking.net was established, I had a hard time finding like a central hub for these kinds of things. They did talk about ROM hacks on Sonic Fan Games HQ, but they didn't mm-hmm. host them because it was pretty much focused around fan games you could download made in other software. Right, right. And, and that's interesting to me because these two circles actually interlap at some point in time, which might actually be a good idea to introduce the idea of the retro engine. So one of these Sonic fans, Sonic heads, uh, big Sonic bros. <laughs> I think that's that's the official term. Yeah, thank you. The BSBs. Yeah. But there's a guy within these Sonic communities that builds an entire game development engine based on the physics of Sonic the Hedgehog that allows people to create these sort of fan games like Sid is talking about essentially using the same characteristics and assets that you would use like if, if Sega were making a Sonic game. I think that's where a lot of the popularity of Sonic within the fan game community comes in. Unlike a lot of other things like Mario or any other obsession, Quake, Doom, etc. This is sort of like taking a style of game that very much went out of business when the Genesis went out in the late 90s and keeping it alive through sheer passion. There weren't 2D Sonic games created after the, the Sega Genesis went off the market in 1997. And I said, when you were saying you were looking at a lot of fan games, what were you seeing at this time? There was definitely a lot that were made using game creation software. That's half of my in. Like, I was a Sonic fan, but also I came across Click and Play when I was pretty young because there was a sort of free trial version that was all over the internet. And Click and Play was uh, by the company Click Team, whose software Fusion is on Steam. It's on everywhere, game creation software. It, the line goes Click and Play the games factory, click and create, multimedia fusion, fusion. <laughs> click and play was pretty widespread in my experience as well. Yeah, especially because there was a version for like schools that was free, but they didn't really have anything in place to really check if you were a school. So mm. lots of people just downloaded that version. <laughs> a lot of hungry students out there. <laughs> And it was pretty interesting to see just how many ways they had to solve problems of the software to get around its deficiencies. One of the things that kind of stood out to me, I remember, was my first experience with, you know, 
the software can do a lot of things, but it won't do exactly what you tell it to. It's to say, have this object be locked onto this character. But then like when the character jumped, the object would lag behind because the software was not like running that loop as fast as the game ran. Sonic Robo Blast 2, a really popular fan game. It was like a, a Doom wad that's now gone beyond that basic like descriptor. The first game was made in a click team product. It might have been click and play or something later. I can't quite remember. Mm. Yeah, I remember stumbling across that because I played two and I'd never heard of the first mm -hmm. one. And I was, I was like, oh, man, I bet the first one's pretty. Oh, it's hideous. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's not pleasing. Like, credit to them for not like ripping sprites from other games and wanting to do their own art. But it is deeply unpleasant to look at. It's like so different that it's shocking they chose to put a two on the end of this one and not just call it something mm -hmm. else. That game had a lot of glitches where I jumped on an enemy, but I died. And that's just because they couldn't track it. So you see people coming up with all these weird solutions like, OK, when Sonic jumps, it actually turns into a different object. That's just the jumping Sonic object so that when it collides with something, there's no possible way the software can get it confused. And it will like react how it should when it hits something. Otherwise, the loop might not run fast enough. And even though you are jumping when you hit something, it wasn't keeping track of that. So you would get hurt or die. And that's why these other engines were um, so appealing is that something that was written in C or C++ or any of these things that you couldn't just drag and drop stuff onto the field with, which is why I didn't ever learn to do it. <laughs> um, <laughs> It was so appealing because the logic was built from the ground up to function as a Sonic game. The other engines that you're talking about, like, for instance, click and play, you're using like assets like ripped out of existing Sonic games, taking things where you can find them. It's very different than what Christian Whitehead ends up doing with the retro engine, which is just being this kind of all in one solution for making fan games. So I was looking up a database of games made with like click and play and with with Fusion, and I was like, oh, what other... What other stuff did people use this for? If you take a look at that link that I dropped in the Discord. Oh, good Lord. Oh, good Lord. <laughs> Nothing. It's literally, it's just a wall of sidekicks. <laughs> <laughs> so we're looking at wow. a, a series of fan, Sonic fan games. Um, and looking by the, the dates of these around mid-2000s. Yeah, it looks, looks like yeah. it. Emerald Ties Sage 2005 edition. I remember Neo Sonic Godspeed. I'm disappointed because they all have proper names and look like really well-developed projects. Well, looks can be deceiving. Okay, fair I'll enough. Say, fair enough. The, yeah. The, yeah, they are using existing art, and like the art is all you can go by on the screenshot. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. So are you telling me that, that some of these fan games are not exactly uh, polished? <laughs> surprise, surprise. But yeah, there's uh, any level of quality. Well, like, I mean, I mean, RoboBlast 2, like, I, I consider that to be extremely good for a fan game but also just kind of in its own right it feels like that like the saturn sonic game that should have existed mm -hmm. there there's definitely some some really good stuff out there and absolute dog shit right no oh, yeah <laughs> well no no <laughs> everything is everything is quality i love it all <laughs> <laughs> so if you're looking through like let's let's say you got a big pile of rom hacks or whatever you are going to have a, a non-zero number of unpleasant experiences. I will never forget mm -hmm. one of the first ROM hacks I've ever seen, which is Streets of Rage 3, parentheses, extra gay. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> you never see that and go in thinking, all right, I'm in for a great time on the internet today. You see a lot of ephemera from old internet culture in these ROM hacks, too. A strong bad doing Sonic the Hedgehog with a gun. 
Well, and the weird thing about this is kind of the nature of the way that like retro games, like in general, like the like 8-bit and GBA and like 16-bit stuff, how that stuff is like aggregated in like ROM collections where I feel like a lot of people get their get their ROMs now. Yes, for sure. That that's those kind of fan games stick around way past the cultural references that they're making. Mm. I've stumbled on a few things like that when I've downloaded like a complete collection or something. What you're saying is very true. It does. It has long legs because these like ROM packs have sort of become official history in some way. On the Internet in general, there's like jokes about putting Wilford Brimley in things because a lot of people thought the way he said diabetes in an oatmeal commercial was really funny. But there are like a ton of ROM hacks where they just replace the main character with Wilford Brimley. Yes. And like all the animations for the character, like it's on Twitter, it would be like an image edit now yeah <laughs> maybe like a couple seconds of animation of something and then people are like wow that's a really high effort joke but like back then like a rom was probably the size of like a gif so yes. the the effort in acquiring it was about the same and you'll probably stick with it longer because instead of just watching it for two seconds you're playing sonic the hedgehog so it's pretty good <laughs> The weird thing about the sort of split between fan games and ROM hacks is that fan games, since they were built from any kind of base, maybe someone was just getting their start and they want to make a Sonic game, or someone you know, put together a pretty good engine and someone else was using it, or the person who put together the engine was making a short proof of concept game, and those mm-hmm. were really good, or if it was like a really early one, it you know, was generally pretty bad. So yes. like, there, there was really... I don't think there was ever some sort of like rookie who just came out of nowhere and was incredible and that kind of stuff because they all uploaded all the games they made on the way to getting good. So you could see that then with ROM hacks, there are a lot of like lower effort jokes, you know, because it was modifying Sonic, like the feel was always good. It was very rare to have a fan game that was just a low effort joke. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, what, remember the uh, Sonic the Hedgehog for Super Nintendo? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> there was a ROM that kept showing up on ROM sites and in collections that was like, that was like, uh, I say like the the late '90s um, equivalent of entrapment, like <laughs> where it was, you'd be like Sonic the Hedgehog for Super Nintendo, and of course you download it, and it was like. It was garbage. And you'd like, yeah, it was Sonic. And you'd run along this like mostly flat ground. You'd find Mario in cages. And you'd like when you ran by, it would unlock it. And he'd be like, Mario. Okay, I found it. It was Sonic the Hedgehog 4 for the Super Nintendo. uh, (laughs) Yes. By a Peruvian group called the Twin Eagles Group is a hack of Speedy Gonzalez Los Gatos Bandidos. Oh, there we go. (laughs) There we go. Wild West. What was the name of that ROM hacking group? Oh, I already Twi- closed the window. <laughs> Twin Eagles? Yeah, that sounds like a CIA front company. <laughs> the Twin Eagle Absolutely. The Twin Eagle group is behind a lot of great ROM hacks. <laughs> I, I, I did hear that members of the Twin Eagle group stormed the Capitol. <laughs> <laughs> so the reason why we're going over this ROM hacking in this sort of personal detail is I think it's important to, to emphasize the wide variety of ROM hacks out there in the world, not just Sonic. I would actually highly recommend that players that are interested in old games head on over to a website like ROM Hacking for patches that allow older games to feel a little more comfortable to modern audiences or introduce save features where previously there was none. Uh, ROM Hacking generally is quite additive. This game, this, this Sonic Mania game we're discussing today, is kind of like the culmination of that culture to me because 
it was put together by people who had decent amount of fan game experience who had made their own Sonic creation tools and then just pitched that game idea straight to Sega. Two people specifically are credited with this, Taxman and Stealth. They have they have, you know, other names, but I think it's, you know, cool internet name. I'm going with it. And I think that you can ignore all of their ROM hacking history if you want to. What they did with uh, Sonic Mania, as well as their their work on the Sonic CD port, is the highest highest quality you can imagine for these like retro reimaginings. It goes beyond just being a modification of the existing work and becomes its own unique high quality thing. Especially Sonic Mania, but even Sonic CD, which is kind of like remixing an older game together. These games were all created within that retro engine that we discussed that was created for the purposes of making fan games. And the strength of the retro engine is that it also allows for clean porting to modern devices, which is a thing that's not always easy uh, to do with retro games. We've set the table a little bit. We've got our friends Taxman and Stealth. They're heading over to the Sonic team at Sega, and they are pitching their game to the head of Sonic team at the time, Takashi Izuka, who has worked on previous Sonic games like Sonic 3. He decided to go ahead and greenlight this fan project and give it the official backing of Sega, give it the additional support of Sonic team members. But before we get too deep into that, we're going to take a quick break and we're going to run to our reading series. episode's reading series, I would like to read you selections from a piece entitled Pocket-Sized Archives, Classic Consoles, Consumed Nostalgia, and Corporate Rememory by James K. Harris. This piece is set to be published in the Journal of Popular Culture, Volume 1, Issue 1. It's currently available for purchase from a Volume 0 special edition on the Wiley website, scheduled to be published sometime in 2021. Harris's piece is about another piece of retro nostalgia, specifically the recent trend of game companies selling miniaturized versions of their older consoles, an old Nintendo Entertainment System, an old Sega Genesis, for instance. I chose this piece because while we're here talking about our own personal experiences with Sonic the Hedgehog and, you know, sort of the culture surrounding that game, I think it's also important to add a little bit of complication and talk about the purposes of nostalgia. Nostalgia by itself is not just this universal emotion that we all experience in the same way. And I think that Harris's piece really emphasizes how important it is to develop a personal relationship with nostalgia. So I would like to start. Nintendo's re-releasing, remastering, of the past is a prime example of corporate rememory. Corporate rememory is a method of archival practice that leverages what theorist Gary Cross terms consumed nostalgia to create a sense of community reinforced through brand identity. It is the archive as advertisement par excellence. What essentially uh, our, our author is saying here is that what we know as history, what we know as the past how the past is put together, the way that these stories are ordered, is largely a corporate practice in the modern day. 
And I think that bit at the end, uh, a sense of community reinforced through brand identity, it really touches on what we're covering here today. Sonic is absolutely the very definition of something like that. And if you want an example, you can go online and find everyone flipping their wig over the CGI in the Sonic movie. <laughs> you know, you'd think Sonic was being held at gunpoint for fuck's sake. I think what you're seeing here is that sense of community developing around brand identity. And this piece, as I go on, is actually going to touch on maybe why that is. The impulse toward nostalgia, or more specifically what theorist Gary Cross terms consumed nostalgia, in conjunction with a lack of formal procedures for preserving and archiving key artifacts throughout the history of the medium, created the ideal conditions of possibility for the birth of classic consoles. One thing that is interesting to me about these classic consoles before we go deeper into the reading, they are really just emulators and ROPs, right? These are simple machines that have the same emulators you download online with the same ROMs that you download online. In some cases, especially I, I want to say in virtual console services, Nintendo, when they serve their retro games up, actually use dumps from ROM sets. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like this is all material that's out there in the wilderness in the first place. And what this article is talking about, what is what Harris is talking about here is the example of Nintendo taking the presentation and selling something that already exists because of this community to a broader audience. I've long since maintained that nobody filed a cease and desist with ME Paradise without first downloading a full site rip. <laughs> <laughs> What are they going to do? They don't have the ROMs. Yeah, well, it, it, yeah, it's very clear that Nintendo was like, yo, you can't do that. But also, we don't actually have copies of any of this stuff. So <laughs> Harris quotes another author, Svetlana Boyum. And I really like this quotation, so I wanted to include it here. Nostalgia as a historical emotion came of age at a time of romanticism and is coeval with the birth of mass culture. It began with the early 19th century memory boom that turned the salon culture of educated urban dwellers and landowners into ritual commemoration of lost youth, lost springs, lost dances, lost chances. The nostalgic desires to obliterate history and then turn it into private or collective mythology to revisit time like space refusing to surrender the irreversibility of time that plagues the human condition. Pretty fucking intense for Sonic the Hedgehog. <laughs> but, <laughs> but very, well, very well, fucking relevant. A, there is a decent amount of time travel in the Sonic the Hedgehog lore. <laughs> so maybe pump the brakes on that. Yeah, when I said Harris was quoting Svetlana Boyum, I meant the famous author of the Sonic CD manual. <laughs> I mean, considering some of the phrases that were written on the Japanese copies of Sonic 1 and Sonic CD about, like, reach, like, <laughs> making it in life, you don't want the sun to laugh at you as you stand in place, etc. Like, is this so much more, like, high-minded than those quotes? It's perhaps better written, but, you know. So, I'm sorry, saying perhaps is a pretty big insult to Svetlana Boy. It's definitely better written. <laughs> The thing I like about this passage is that the obliterating history part, because I know that's, that's quite loaded language, but to somebody like me who is entire like life and career is tied into history, it's kind of a thing. 
and it's not it's not a thing that happens on purpose it, it's kind of just how our brains work there's only so much room for memory and the memories that we share with each other tend to be a little bit more concrete so if i were to ask you sid how many games are there in the main sonic the hedgehog series what would your answer be just i'm just throwing that out there 40 <laughs> where i would say like five maybe five <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there we go. Yeah, I was about to I was about to interject that <laughs> as a joke, but no, you're right. It's five or 40. Five. The point I'm trying to make here is that like our own history of Sonic the Hedgehog means that like, for instance, taking a fan game like Sonic Robo Blast off the list. Fucking ridiculous. Why would you do that? Why? It's such a great game. And it's it feels like Sonic. But without your knowledge of these like weird, obscure Internet communities, or your your you know very fascinated focus on getting the best damn Sonic the Hedgehog game you can play for twenty three years in a row, then this stuff doesn't exist. It doesn't exist in the collective memory. It's not part of how Sonic is remembered, unless you have that personal connection. And I think that this is what the discussion around nostalgia in this piece is really emphasizing: is developing that personal connection. Yeah, I I find Sonic a very interesting franchise in this regard. Because I guess as like Sega being the only recent real major quote unquote loser in the console war. Yeah, it, yeah. It's been very easy to sort of rewrite their history in a very negative light. Like, oh, well, if they made Sonic more good, it wouldn't have like the Dreamcast would have failed. <laughs> but like it had a 56K modem and then everyone's like, oh, this is good. But also a new type of Internet's out now that's better. So yes. we're going to sell it with that. And also we own the DVD market. And the Matrix just came out on DVD. Maybe yeah. that happened, and it actually wasn't about how good Sonic Adventure Two was. Yes, I don't know exactly, exactly. <laughs> you know, and it became very easy to say like, "Oh, Sonic was never good." That... It's a meme. It's an internet meme. And you know, people say, "Oh, Sonic One, it's so dead." Like maybe Sonic Two is a lot better, but Sonic One, you slow down and you have to push blocks in this level. That's terrible. <laughs> you know, if you, if you ask someone like, "Is Super Mario Brothers One like?" Does it still hold up? Is it just, like, so good? Because I played Super Mario Bros. Deluxe on a Game Boy Color uh, just years after, you know, Super Mario Bros. 1 came out. And, you know, I played it a bit here and there, but I hated it. I absolutely... <laughs> and it wasn't just like, oh, this isn't Sonic. This sucks. Like, But, you know, the thing is, I remember I mentioned that in a conversation where someone was saying, like, oh, Sonic 1 isn't very good. I'm like, yeah, Super Mario Bros. 1 isn't very good. I'm like, well, of course it's not. But, like, it's weird. Like, of course Super Mario Bros. 1 isn't good but like no one no one goes out of their way to just jump into every conversation about mario and be like man super mario brothers one sucks <laughs> like it doesn't happen and like because it it's kind of ridiculous but i think by that same token saying that about sonic one is pretty ridiculous and by yes. comparison i think sonic one's a significantly yeah. more enjoyable game in a modern sense than super mario brothers one is but I, yeah, I agree. I mean, just visually alone. Since this is an episode about ROM hacks, the uh, there are hacks of Son of Sonic One that add like the modern conveniences, like Spin Dash and stuff, that completely like wipe away any complaints I have about Sonic One. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. You can you can pave those things over. Yeah, I, I think what Sid's saying is interesting though, because it's like you're developing your own personal canon, so to speak. It's not that it's <laughs> not that Super Mario doesn't exist. It's just like why do I have to speak the language? Why do I have to know everything about it? Why does it why is it important if I don't enjoy it? And I, I like that. I, I appreciate the approach. As someone who generally does not like a lot of, like, AAA games, for instance, you do have to kind of, like, form your own relationship with that stuff. We're not engaging with these things broadly. 
Which we're not talking about Mario's place in the canon. That's nerd shit. Uh, <laughs> we're, we're talking about basically what appeals to us, and there's more of that human, that human connection there. The author here, Harris, then goes into the act of ROM hacking. He goes into the act of modifying your game console, and I'd like to read his thoughts on it right quick. In this way, fandom reasserts a certain level of control over the history of the medium and access to it. Beyond the officially licensed products, the market for used original hardware or custom modifications remains alive and well. Second-hand consoles are readily available at retailers across the country, and the proliferation of digital gaming marketplaces such as Steam and Good Old Games makes access to many older titles less a matter of corporate permission than consumer persistence and ingenuity. In this way, gaming continues to blur the line between producer and consumer, highlighting the extent to which a medium relies on interactivity can never fully police boundaries between creators and consumers. What might be thought of as the creative consumption of gaming underscores that playing is making and that players have an essential role in the game. It is through their participation and engagement that the game becomes more than a computer program, more than an amalgam of code and processes. That consumers feel a particularly strong attachment to video games makes a certain sense in that context. Games are perhaps the only medium in which consumers can feel their involvement literally shape the cultural artifact, both at a level of development and in terms of the specific iteration of play. This guy is putting into words very much how I view these fan communities, ROM hacking, custom firmware, etc., as someone with formal training in libraries and archives. One of the reasons why I actually wanted to start this show and talk about this, the, the things we talk about here is because gaming is relatively unique in this ability for the audience to have more of a say over history than anything else. Every single thing that we've talked about on this show, hopefully from episode one, has absolutely reflected the idea that it is the communities that we keep alive, the social connections that do create the sense of, of a firmer history, of, of a richer history, of a smarter history. Compare that to film, for fuck's sake. Compare that to television. Like, the only thing I can even think of close by would be, like, people who recut the Star Wars movies so that the, the aliens look slightly less CGI. <laughs> or, or Turner recolorizing Wizard of Oz. Like, do we have other comparison points for this stuff? It doesn't feel like it. I mean, not as, like, a complete product, because, yeah... Topher Grace, like, recut uh, the Star Wars films. And apparently it's like a thing, or Lord of the Rings maybe, it was, it was a long movie trilogy because he played uh, David Duke in Black Klansman, and like, playing <laughs> characters who are awful people, he says, like, to sort of bring himself back down from having to, like, play someone like that. You know, yeah. he likes recutting movies. But, you know, <laughs> he screened it for just his family. Right? He can't release the grace cut of Star Wars or Lord of the Rings or whatever, right? But, like, <laughs> like that's what happens in games and, like, we do get to experience but because it's so difficult to do something like that with movies because the, the laws are so restrictive. And uh, forget distribution if you actually wanted to distribute it to other people, right? Like, good luck unless you're selling DVDs out of the trunk of your car at the farmer's market. Yeah. I would say a uh, I'd say a good example of the uh, analogy to rom hacking in, in film would be dubs. Oh, like, yeah, for sure. Uh, yeah. 
or oral knots like uh they have they've been doing the entire they did the original trilogy and then the prequels and uh, just kind of been working through that doing like complete recuts and dubs and that's all just out there on youtube yeah. that's true oh you know i can think of a, another cinematic equivalent sure uh, godfrey ho films uh please educate me what <laughs> uh, godfrey ho is pretty infamous for taking other you know still low budget films mm -hmm. uh, and adding ninjas to them <laughs> with his own footage or footage from other ninjas <laughs> wait, wait. this guy sounds like an absolute fucking prince uh what godfrey ho yeah yeah, oh. a 70s era filmmaker. He did make some original films, but, you know, it, it's a real standout where, like, you know, someone will be on the phone in an office, and then it'll cut to a guy in, like, a camo ninja outfit in, like, <laughs> a quarry or something, and there's a phone there, and he's the one on the other end of the line. Because, you know, <laughs> these movies were recorded super low budget. They weren't really lip-synced in the first place. No. Because they were expecting to dub it, so they didn't have to do on-location sound. Mm -hmm. So... It looks about as good. If you know it, then you could start to see the seams uh, <laughs> because of how film distribution for super low budget pictures wasn't, you know, especially legally protected in the 70s. God, no. you know, the, you got to distribute. Can these. I read a few Godfrey Ho movie titles? Oh, please do. Ninja Terminator, mm -hmm. Ninja the Protector. The Ninja Squad, Ninja Champion, Robo Vampire, Ooh. Ninja Dragon, <laughs> Golden Ninja Warrior, Ninja Silent Assassin, Ninja Empire, The Ultimate Ninja, <laughs> Clash of the Ninja, Bionic Ninja. Like it goes, and it's like it's like there's a link to C45 more. Mm -hmm. My man knows wow. his ninjas. I'm glad that I was able to introduce you to this because like <laughs> those movies, a lot of them are you know unsurprisingly bad. You know. And sometimes even in a boring way, but there are a lot of those that are just <gasps> a treat. Oh my god, he made a Cynthia Rothrock movie? You've made my weekend. I'll keep reading here. To survive in an unrelenting competitive global marketplace where there is little in the way of regulation to rely on, corporations have had to become increasingly savvy about getting their computers to buy into not merely a product, but a story. These stories often take the form of nostalgic reminders of the corporation's past. Of course, because no corporation has passed free of mistakes, corporate rememory is the preferred strategy of offering selective access to an archive in an effort to create a sense of history totally that is just an advertisement for future products. Disney's infamous Vault strategy is the prime example here. The Disney Vault was the nickname the Disney Studios Home Entertainment into its policy of selective access to its older animated features. Films would go into the vault when Disney would stop selling them, and producing new copies for a period of typically 10 years. To hear Disney explain it, the goal was to control the market for their films and allow Disney films to be introduced to a new generation. But the specifics of this practice, including which films were released and which were withheld and why, get to the heart of some of the ideas that continue to animate the kinds of corporate archival practices on display on today's so-called classic consoles, attempting to answer the question of what precisely a corporation is necessitates retracing a conversation within its roots in property rights, contract law, and two centuries of jurisprudence. You know this too if you own a Switch, right? A good example would be Nintendo's policy of only allowing access to some of its older titles through its uh, like streaming cloud service. Uh, it, of course, limits the number of titles you see and very, very much restricts which titles are available. Is that fair to say? Yes. 
Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't say it's bad or anything, but if you were looking to, say, have a, the experience of really jumping deep into a console's history, you're not going to get it from these mini consoles, and you're probably not going to get it from the official services either. I can't really think of any modern game company that really does a good job of keeping their catalog online and in high quality. I will say the the main reason I'm remembering now that I picked up the SNES Classic is because that was the first time that they'd officially released Star Fox 2. Yes. Yeah. So it was like, it was one of those weird things where it's like, well, now what's the official version of that game? Is it, is it the ROM played on, played on official like Super Nintendo hardware? Or is the official version the imperfect emulation <laughs> on the SNES Classic? <laughs> <laughs> what should preservationists be holding on to? I think that if you've seen folks that have a really, really intense personal identification with the type of media they they enjoy, I think Disney people's a great example here, but Nintendo people are a thing. Comic book people are a thing. I'm a thing for Japanese JRPG developer Falcom. Everybody has their particular interests and fascinations, but it's this idea that what you like is sold to you as history that we need to push back at. I had sent you this tweet in a, in a DM. This is more so the scene that's trying to get like the best visual quality out of their out of their retro games. Sure. But I feel like it that what it has to say about nostalgia really, really speaks to this same kind of thing. Um, but this is from uh, it's a it's Twitter user at 32 Mbit. They've been making a lot of CD audio ROM hacks for the Mega EverDrive Pro. Sure. Uh, but they put out this tweet that <laughs> they kind of, it felt a bit like a personal attack. <laughs> uh, but they, they, I wonder if this PVM, CRT, RGB, optical drive emulator, OSSC, FPGA mess is all because we're chasing novelty and the old games aren't as magical as they once were. We developed this fetish for the perfect setup. Like maybe if we get the perfect sound and picture, the games will thrill us again. Yeah, the classic console phenomenon is pretty interesting because obviously Nintendo is very precious about like, oh, you love our retro stuff, which is, of course, a thing they only realized because emulation kept retro game interest alive. They very much played into that. Like, here it is. It's a console as you remember it. Here's some high quality emulation with some new quality of life features. Yeah. Whereas Sony, the guy who's the CEO now, wasn't before, but he said, you know, we had a trade show about the history of PlayStation games. And I saw Gran Turismo running on PS1 and thought, who wants to play any of this? <laughs> like, you know, you just couldn't imagine someone wanting to play old PlayStation games. And then when you see the PlayStation Classic, it had subpar emulation. Uh, it couldn't run full speed NTSC games, so it ran the PAL versions of the games, which are slower. Like when you run a side by side, it's actually pretty apparent how much slower it is. Mm -hmm. And even then, the emulation's still imperfect. You know, so a lot of people saw that and were like, oh, wow, these. I guess these weren't as good as I remember. Like, they're actually much better. But in releasing that product, they sort of reaffirm the worldview of like, oh, no, this isn't as good as you remember. Just forget about it. Yeah. Buy the new console. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All of us here, I'm sure, have like done ROM pack diving, right? Is that fair to say? Oh, We've yeah. got a, a big zip full of ROMs or whatever. Mike said something in a previous episode of this show that really caught me, which is that like, it was when you were talking about Mule. You said, if I just had a big pack of ROMs and I opened up Mule, and I spent two to three minutes on it, then I don't think I'd ever understand why it's good. And mm -hmm. I think that Nintendo is very much into the idea of selling you that experience, right? Selling you the, oh my God, what is Vice Project Doom? Oh, that's great. You drive a car? Um, <laughs> but, but to me as a librarian, like a librarian by trade, it is a great example of not giving your audience a way to interact with these things. Do you know what I mean? There's no mm -hmm. playlist. There's no uh, 
uh, video explanations of people talking about why the game connects to them. There's no greater understanding of who made the game and the craft behind it. So now we're going to talk about what is it particularly about Sonic that has drawn this kind of communal approach or this audience towards it. This is something I would probably prefer to do as a discussion. I don't have a lot of notes here, but I would like to, to start by uh, just throwing a question out there, which is what is it about Sonic that makes these games hackable, that makes people want to hack them? I think the strong character focus is an immediate, like, easy appeal to jump to. Like, you know, Sonic 1, they didn't have the other characters from later in the series, so the novelty of even putting the later characters who are functionally different and design-wise different, it seems like a sort of gap to fill. I want to play Sonic 1, but with this other character from later in the series, you know, that you don't get with similar games, usually because they just don't have the same spread of characters who are notably different. Mm -hmm. Maybe in some statistical ways. Like, I mean, Mario Brothers 2, the characters are statistically different, but... You can't really, like, the game is so different that you can't say, I want to put this, like, Toad as the main character in Super Mario 1, whereas Sonic 3 is the same kind of game as Sonic 1. Mm. That's interesting. I like that. Uh, what do you think, Mike? Is there something about Sonic that makes him particularly appealing, or...? I haven't done as deep of a dive into some of the Sonic, some of the Sonic fan games that are out there, and most of the ones that I've seen have been that, like, that character swap kind of thing mm. where it's like oh we added a new character or the character has a new mechanic or like something about like the way that the the way that you control that character has changed and i don't see like a lot of level changes and that's why it's like i i mean that stuff is definitely out there but that's that's always seemed to me like you know kind of what i was saying about like about sonic earlier where what people seem to like about those older games is that sense of speed mm. It honestly, it kind of surprises me that it's as popular as it is. Having never seen a seen a Sonic ROM hack before, I wouldn't have thought that the like that there was much potential there. Um, obviously, the millions of Sonic fan games out there, it's like <laughs> there's more Sonic fan games than there are Sonic fans. I think, yeah. um, and that's <laughs> that's obviously proven me wrong. So, so I mean, I can't really say that I understand it. With Sonic fan games, it's easier to conceive of making a new level because your your experience with sonic with the original levels is so encoded into your experience with the game that like i mean and it's that difference that i mentioned between the approaches of say sonic versus mario mm -hmm. where mario rearranges assets in different ways to make new levels and challenges therefore for fans doing rom hacks of that doing the same thing comes naturally whereas in sonic you know the level layout and the music and the, like the art you know required the unique assets required to make a new level you do have the same flexibility technically but it's easy to feel that you don't i feel like sonic has a very idiosyncratic feel there are not a lot of other platforming games in this genre you know where you're running around as a little dude and doing and jumping around on stuff 
that have really kind of nailed that sense of speed and motion to the point where most of the like the retro aesthetic style games that have been in the Sonic's history, Sonic Advance, Sonic DS, etc., they feel wrong. There's like a wrongness to them almost. I'm sure I sound like an old dad talking about a car or something. Um, but, <laughs> but it's kind of one of those things where like I can't describe to you what makes Sonic special. I can tell you when it sucks, though. I can tell you when Sonic's bad and I don't like it. <laughs> you said when when you said it, an old dad talking about a car, all I could imagine was like Vin Diesel talking about like his dad's car in the first Fast and the Furious movie, <laughs> except it's about a rom hack his dad made. <laughs> When he took the speed cap off of Sonic 1 and I realized how fast I can go. I knew I could never slow down again. So much torque, Sonic's skeleton twisted coming off the line. <laughs> Vin Diesel's dad made Sonic.exe. <laughs> I'll go with the next question. I, I can't. What kind of communities exist for Sonic, Sonic games, and, and how do they influence this hacking scene, this hacking community? Sid, you were talking about, you know, having this like forum, but I mean, Sonic has a has grown so much bigger than that. Subreddits, wikis, tumblers, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Sonic isn't really viewed in the culture as just a game, if that makes sense. Yeah. And I think the ease of that character focus uh, for hacking, you know, that extends as well to fan characters because the Sonic mm. characters give you templates for what these different sort of races of characters look like. And then, you know, some people were just like, he's green, and now he's a different character, in my opinion. That was the joke. Someone would apply, like, a spectrum filter to a picture of Sonic and then say, these are all my OCs, don't steal them. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, there were people who were like, okay, I'll give him this touch, and I'll give him this, and he'll wear this clothing, and have these kinds of shoes. Like, hey, what if there was a different hedgehog in Sonic? Like, when they do that, that's what they look like. So a fan doing the same thing. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm, I'm sure someone, probably by happenstance, designed a character that looked like Shadow the Hedgehog before Shadow the Hedgehog actually existed. They had to have. He's just Sonic with a gun. Now, Sid, you were saying that back in the day for you, it was mostly fan games that were getting released to these channels, right? Yeah. They had to try and replicate some kind of function. So in that case, you didn't see as many original characters, but also because some people had to start from the beginning, they thought, I want to make a Sonic game. But it's really hard to make a Sonic game in the way this engine works. What if I made a character with, you know, with a gun so they can jump and shoot? And that, that's much easier to program in this. And then they made an actual Sonic game with a gun. I think it's interesting to me that, like, these communities basically still persist. The Sonic Wikia, is that what it's called? It's all very well organized and easy to find. I was very surprised. Mm-hmm. These Sonic people don't fuck around, Sid. <laughs> yeah I, it was uh, quite a, a blast from the past not everything i remember is there but like i'm not surprised someone didn't think that the game sonic slam by user davy slam was like especially <laughs> noteworthy in the canon all i remember is that i played it i don't remember anything else about it it was oh probably God. okay I, I need i need like a like a a hyrule historia type book where they try and just like just like make sense of all the sonic fan games in the canon <laughs> How much money can we give Jeremy Parrish to give himself brain damage? <laughs> <laughs> you know, there are certain things in there that are a lot more noticeable. Like, I mentioned this on the stream that I joined you for before, where, you know, there are so many games made in, in game-making programs that people who coded something, you know, that, that was pretty elevated because it 
you know, due to coding being a little more lean than using game creation software, it was easier to actually download the thing. Yeah, yeah. They ran better on weaker computers, and, you know, they were coded few specs, so they played more like a Sonic game. It was rare to see that, you know, because it's more difficult versus the more democratized game creation tools. Sure. But also, none of those were complete games, like, ever Not, like though you could say they're complete but they're proof of concepts for engines pretty yeah, much yeah 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 that makes sense there i mean even the best sonic rom hacks that i played were like three levels long and like they were great don't get me wrong but not not at least that like sonic mania does yeah and it's very common for you know whenever someone makes a new 3d sonic fan game or <laughs> a, a reaction to it to be like oh well sega's having trouble making a 3d sonic why don't you make it like this and like this is like pretty ill-defined at this point like yeah it's cool like it's a big level where you have to run fast to do various goals so it's kind of like tony hawk like that's a cool approach mm -hmm. you know for sure and it'd be interesting to see them tackle that with like more funding and planning but to say like this is how you should do it like <laughs> the, the thing that's available is so obviously just a concept it's the same as when you know someone would make a fan film of like a character who hadn't gotten very good adaptations in film and it would be like three minutes and it's basically a montage where people say like this is what the movie should be like like before <laughs> wonder woman came out there's a fan film like she beats up some muggers and then this it's in a couple of flashbacks of her and the amazons throwing spears at titans and like this is what the movie should be i'm like her beating up muggers and then beating up titans but for two hours <laughs> that's all that's in it. she doesn't say anything <laughs> No, you're right, though. It's like, we all have this intense desire to, like, preserve our, our idea of the thing. And then we put it, put it into the world and realize, like, oh, it's very different than everyone else. Oh, God, now that, that's why there's 900 of these. And also why every formal Sonic game is different and weird. That's actually a good spring-off point. In, in y'all's mind, how does Sonic differ from other big gaming franchises like Mario, uh, Dragon Quest, uh, uh, John Madden? Like, these are all, like, big, high-scale series with name value. I mean, two out of four have a movie. I'm waiting for that John Madden CGI. Um, <laughs> oh, hold on, I'm Googling John Madden fan <laughs> <laughs> Is there something that makes Sonic different than these other things? To me, the, the, the thing that immediately stands out is the fact that Sega died. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> for lack of a better way to put it. Sega stopped creating its own games and its own hardware as a primary focus early in the 2000s. And it's hard to say that they've ever been able to keep their brand identity through that. I can't really tell you how it started, but I feel like it's it's a, a product of the community at this point, right? Mm -hmm. Like, it's that kind of like um, that, like entrenched belief system that comes from, like, having people tell you that you're wrong, that I'm sure nobody knows anything about these days. <laughs> um, <laughs> You've been told like these games are bad, but you love them. So so you just like seek out other people that also love them. And you kind of create this like tight knit community that like pours everything they have into this fandom, which is like not necessarily a bad thing. Sometimes, sometimes as with every fandom, sometimes it absolutely is a bad thing. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> I, I don't know that you can really point point back to like Sega losing their console war with the Dreamcast because it's like the age of like kids that are into Sonic now. It's like. They they weren't around for that, and they and their first exposure to Sonic was on GameCube or on Saturday morning television, right? Like that's a thing. Yeah, there's kids getting into it because of Sonic Boom. So it's like, what the, what the fuck do I know at this point? Well, no, I, 
Sega has been in this identity crisis of trying to like make its old things sing again since then. You can see kind of the struggle to get a 3D Sonic off the ground that people like is a, is a great example here. And it's because of this lack of like a big smashing success that in my mind that like Sonic's now defined by eight failed relaunches. Sonic's now defined by a movie. Sonic is now defined by, like you said, Sonic Boom, the TV show. It's not Mario. If Nintendo announced a new Mario tomorrow, I would have to turn off Twitter for a day. If Sega announced a new Sonic tomorrow, Twitter would be great for about 24 hours. Just people <laughs> people will go open season on their expectations for it to fail, the things that will go wrong, uh, the sins of Sega's past, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Like, yeah, the, the joke I have about the Sonic franchise is any time Sonic as a property does something wrong, magically the previous game in the Sonic franchise was Sonic 2006. <laughs> <laughs> because, and yes, it was a high-profile failure, but in a way, the way Sega treats Sonic, you know, like, Sonic's a mascot. He can do anything. Mm -hmm. And, you know, okay, yeah, Mario, like, golfs and plays tennis and is in board games or whatever, but, like, there's a distinct spin-off identity to that, whereas with Sonic, that's their approach with any game in the series. Yes. Yeah, even like Sonic Generations posits him as a sort of nostalgic character with a lot of history, but even then, classic Sonic in that game is like a nice sort of like Mickey Mouse type character and not yeah. portrayed with an attitude. So even that, it's not really aiming to be like historical. And Sonic Forces is a sequel to that. It's like Sonic can also get like apparently tortured for six months and then the next time you see him he's like i'm out of here see you later it's like <laughs> it, it didn't affect him like it's like a kid's idea of what torture would be and i mean in that sense like even when shadow had a gun it's sega like has always treated sonic as something like kids will like and to some degree assume shadow still has that gun right <laughs> I, I think so he, he... i think you're onto something there because i i, I watched the sonic the hedgehog movie this summer I'm not a movie watcher. That's a that's a weird thing for me to do. I was thrown by how much of the plot seemed to be like Eric Prince and Blackwater are coming to kill Sonic the Hedgehog. <laughs> Sonic's hanging out with a friend who's a cop and has a gun and he's also a DreamWorks character. <laughs> like, that's actually how you sell a mascot, right? Like, I mean, if we look at Shrek, if we look at the, the minions, whatever, whatever meme that you're annoyed by <laughs> that showed up on Facebook six months ago. It's that. That's how you make that money, that by creating that product line that could go across food and clothing and everything, right? But nobody gives a fuck about Sonic the Video Game. <laughs> nobody cares about a new Sonic the Video Game. They're more excited about the Sonic movie where he looks bad. So you mentioning Minions makes me like, God, I hope we're coming up on the time when middle-aged wine moms post Sonic memes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, holy shit. I feel like we skipped right past that. We had the phase of like, here's Tweety Bird with a backwards baseball cap and mm -hmm. arms crossed saying like, don't mess with me, Buster, before I had my wine. <laughs> and then it jumped to Minions and we didn't have the Sonic phase. <laughs> That's true. Shit. <laughs> but we've got Christian Sonic memes, so isn't that like a nice trade-off? Oh, that's true. That's true. <laughs> also with Sonic, if there's a bad Sonic game, that's not especially an event. Yeah, <laughs> true. But, but equally... Yeah. Like, because of the willingness to write off Sonic games as bad, your own personal relationship to the game could be more pronounced. Like, I sure, sure. played Sonic Forces without having played Sonic Generations, 
So for me, I didn't notice any of the like multiple downgrades the game had from Generations, and I was just like, yeah, I like this. It was short. It was, you know, I had a fun time with it. I replayed levels to get better ranks so I could put more clothes on my original character. <laughs> that concept alone of, hey, here's a Sonic game where you make a Sonic OC and they're part of the story, like, brilliant. Yeah, I mean, that really- like, that's, that's what the Sonic fandom pretty much wanted, but like they just stopped yeah. asking for it because no one ever did it. So <laughs> when they finally did it, it's like, yeah, you can barely condemn it for like its various contempts are really hard work. And, you know, the degree of sincerity can lead to songs where they the lyrics are what the story is oh. and not sung particularly well, but also didn't like it but i also liked it like what right. did they say like oh man people say sonic forces is so bad but they like some other sonic game better i'm like yeah and that game doesn't even have lyrics saying what the story is <laughs> <laughs> so were you saying that sonic forces despite having all these creative tools and everything like people just they didn't vibe with it it's got bad like i mean what's the deal i mean it's 50 50 there are some people who are definitely like disappointed and some people who are like oh this is bad like i expect sonic to be but <laughs> and I mean, having an original song that's like the theme of the game, and like, who'd you get? Oh, Douglas Robb from Hoobastank. <laughs> you remember Hoobastank? You do now because of Sonic Forces. Because you haven't thought about Hoobastank in a long time. <laughs> this, ne this next Sonic game brought to you by Puddle of Mud. <laughs> no, listen, the last episode I did about my, po my podcast was about Ace Combat 5, which has a Puddle of Mud song in it. Ooh, so no. already, I already know too much about Puddle of Mud. <laughs> That's what the Thought About Games podcast is, really, is like, once you get to Puddle of Mud, sorry, hour and a half stops, we get into Puddle of Mud details, personal relationships to Puddle of Mud. I do, if I can bring back the previous text, it does seem like, in this instance, Corporate Rememory is releasing Sonic Forces to promote Hoobastank. <laughs> <laughs> and it's time to put Hoobastank back in the Disney vault where they belong. <laughs> I think that if we bring in the sort of rememory idea here from the previous passage, I think personally, this is my, my hot take or whatever, Sonic games are very, very susceptible to corporate rememory. But the thing is, it doesn't work because as you were saying, the, the memories for what these the, the games are supposed to be exist largely within the community. And it's kind of like sclerotic. It's not it's not cohesive. You can't say that there's one right way to make a game. Do you know what I mean? Just based on that fan input. So you see all this chaotic history behind Sonic. You saw these failed games and the expectations that things are bad and, uh, you know, gripes about how the Sonic community works. And it's because of that, like, weird messiness that people have to make their own history. Because you don't want to have to play the games you don't like. You don't want to have to pay attention to the stuff that sucks. But you can create your own little sense of, of, of memory in that space, which is kind of like the very definition of corporate rememory. You're, you're taking that history and you're annihilating it down into, as they said, personal memory, right? But Sonic is unique because... The, it has grown beyond just personal memory into a much broader communal memory and a creative memory as well. And Sonic Mania is very much the apotheosis of that. My question is for you two, how much of what we consider like retro gaming is actually just marketing? How much of it is rememory? How much of it is uh, these old ideas being so, like selectively represented? I think like like 
all of it. I mean, <laughs> I honestly, no, seriously. Like, I feel like you, I feel like as with as with anything, you have the specific experiences. Like when you're talking nostalgia, the specific experiences from your childhood that are going to mean more to you. And there are certain games that like like mean the same amount to a lot of other people, and you can you can share that with with those people. But like, it's the best example I can I can think of is like the Princess Bride. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, people people go on and on about that movie and then i i didn't i didn't watch it for the first time until like three years ago mm-hmm. it it's great but like i i would never put it at that level because it just wasn't part of a time in my life that i would want to go back to sure sure you know because i didn't i didn't watch it then do you think that the sense of memory that we have around retro games is based around like it's not really based around like how good the game is right like that's that's kind of a fallacy yeah, definitely not, because I, I have nostalgia for the great Waldo search on Super Nintendo. So, like, no, it's not based around how good the game is. Like, I, I'll go back and I'll, I'll, I'll play through that game every now and then. And you found Waldo. Uh, yes. <laughs> what if I said no? <laughs> he eludes me to this day. That's why nostalgia sucks. <laughs> I'm getting one of those uh, Elon Musk brain implants so that I can specifically forget where Waldo is. Spending thousands of dollars on like an RGB mod for my for my Super Nintendo and an OSSC because that's the reason I can't find them, <laughs> the video signal. I was getting a joke. I wish they remade this like in 4K so that I could find Waldo easier. But then like modern games graphics are so fucking cluttered that it would be impossible to find Waldo. Yes, I agree. <laughs> yeah, Waldo's behind the HUD. <laughs> you said i mean i think what you do on your show is very much like kind of a a middle finger to to corporate rememory because you really don't talk about like the canon you know what i mean you don't talk about things in those lofty terms for me the approach the games look at historically fondly critically is like historically is i do want to say like where it was in history because like i mean you need that context to say like okay this is not this doesn't incorporate this thing from this later game well if you know when it came out then you would know not to necessarily like hold it against that sure or you know what where it was in games at the time and like fondly is to say like okay i like this aspect of it because of my experience at the time Mm -hmm. so like with the resident evil code veronica episode that game is you know miles and miles away from looking cutting edge now sure but when i played it that was part of the experience was how good it looked Mm. at the time Mm. And if you don't communicate that, then people wouldn't understand that appeal of it. You're like, oh, here's the game now, how I feel about it now. Nostalgia needs context. Otherwise, it's just like praise that seems to come from no, it seems made up. It's just made up at that point. Yeah, yeah. That, that's one of the reasons why I included the critically part, because I, I'd watched like, you know, Let's Plays and retrospectives on games that were universally positive and i felt like that if you saw that you just wouldn't believe it even if you oh. had a 100 positive experience if you never re-examined it at all to come away with any complaints which there's not a single thing i like without reservation right yeah you know so if you say you like something without any reservation it just doesn't sound real. Like, right. all your praise is rendered void by having no criticism. <laughs> <laughs> um, this, to me, feels like a, 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 a argument I would have frequently in college lit classes. So, you know, feel free to throw tomatoes at me. 
This sounds to me like one of those elements where there's definitely a play between the person who's playing it and the game that exists. And and the, the game is informed by the player. The text is informed by the reader. This sense of nostalgia, the sense of history, these important games that we talk about, they almost have no importance to me beyond that personal relationship because your perspective to the game helps me understand other elements of it. And without that more communal relationship to nostalgia, we're just kind of like retracing our own footsteps. You, the person, add something to the game by playing it, by adding your your own unique experience. That's so different than just blankly talking about which part of the game is good. I used to play Mario or Mario World by myself in two-player mode so that I could have Mario and Luigi take branching pathways and give them different storylines that they could then <laughs> tell each other about when they got back together. That, nice. that rocks, actually. That's good. If it's good, then why why doesn't it feel good to tell you that? <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I played Fantasy Star Universe, a game that, like, I trashed really hard on in the first episode of my podcast about Fantasy Star Online. Mm -hmm. It's like, what's a good memory I have of that? Oh, there's one NPC in the game uh, in one town who your character just has, like, a really positive, like, interaction with that, like, changes over the game. It's like, oh, how are you doing? It's like, oh, you know, I had, like, a top spot, but I got through it. Oh, that's great. <laughs> Which is, like, and most of the plot of that, the actual plot of that game is bad, and the main character sucks. <laughs> but... <laughs> But like in those interactions, like, oh, I really like that. That's great. When I think back to me, like criticizing Fantasy Star Universe during the episode, I'm like, I feel like I was too hard on that game. And I mean, yes, I did like it more than I let on in the episode for other reasons, too. But sure, I wasn't really that unfair to it. And I can't imagine someone like say, wow, you were too mean to Fantasy Star Universe in that episode. Like, but personally, just because of my that experience with it specifically, it's enough to make me feel bad. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that's a thing. I mean, I don't think people should be expected to, like, develop their taste or, or what they enjoy in a vacuum. Your, your experience with Fantasy Star Universe sucks. That's your experience. That's what your perspective is still valuable regardless. I feel like too often we talk about, like, when we look at not retro games or gaming communities, uh, you're not celebrating the right thing, if that makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it's much it's much different to... I don't know, to talk to a person about their own personal experiences, because at least then you can talk about why that specific thing connected with you, uh, as opposed to just, this is the right way to do text, this is the wrong way to do text, which I often see in, in this, these Sonic conversations. Mm. What do you think is it about Sonic Mania and Sonic Mania's version of nostalgia and of history that feels satisfying? What is it that makes this game feels like it really nailed it? Uh, I think they pulled off what say like and this is going to open a whole can of worms and i'm not oh, yeah. <laughs> trying to get into it but this is they pulled off what like what i feel like the force awakens was trying to do which mm. was like to be like hey we have this like this this history there's there's been some time since a lot of you have liked what we're doing here <laughs> and so so what we're gonna do is go back like go back really hard to the to the original stuff that you we know you liked for a fact and then and then try and build off of that that's probably why i feel like like why my least favorite parts of sonic mania are where they like they seemingly take zones like wholesale from the old sonic games and just replay them mm. and like there's changes but like in some cases they're like so minute that you don't even really notice what the difference was and then usually they'll do like something new with it in the second zone which is great, mm -hmm. but um, 
most of my experience with Sonic levels is like the same path that I've always taken, you know, mm. like where there's like branching paths that I've never seen in the original games. So it's very possible that some of the changes that they've made are things that I wouldn't even know were changed. Mm. You know, going going back through it now because I because I didn't see that portion of it in the original game. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Which I think probably speaks highly to it if we really don't know which parts are new and which ones are old. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. What I said earlier about you know nostalgia requiring context—that's why I like the sort of Redux uh, act and then the new act—is because of Sonic's reputation. It's in an interesting place where you can just lift something from a previous game like even with some changes you know it is pretty close i'll grant it that but people wouldn't have really played it like especially like new people would yeah. not have played it yes you know it, like especially with how difficult it is so for a lot of people it is their first time and then they're like oh this is good but the old sonic game was bad but like by doing that they've disproven that person's reaction to it <laughs> because it this is what it was yeah it simply is that and then there's a new stage and, you know some people say that they wish that sonic mania had all new stages and that's that's understandable to me but when you're making something like that a game that's a reminder that sonic is good feels like something that would be weird if it didn't have the old stages and you know on yeah. the other hand you know emerald hill from sonic 2 is a similar idea to green hill from sonic 1 so yes they could have made a new stage but then isn't that a semantic difference to some right? extent because yeah. like green hill act 2 which is the redux one is different it, it, yeah different enough and plus like the animation on sonic is different and the enemy animations are different so like like it's not a one-to-one -one exactly but it has such a feeling of familiarity. And I mean, I've heard yeah. like almost one-to-one -one, like layout riffs. Yeah. And the um the fact that it includes characters from like all the games it represents means it doubles as filling that role that was previously handled by ROM hacks, where you'd say, What if this character was in this scenario? Now you have access to that against riffs on the whole franchise. Yeah, and that's true. What was the DLC for the game? Two extra characters that nobody had ever heard of except the nerds? Yeah. <laughs> like I mean, yes, I had heard of them. <laughs> it's, it's a real thing, though. Like what you're speaking to is an absolutely real thing where people went, oh, my God, Ray the Flying Squirrel is finally playable. And, mm -hmm. and I understand those strings of words. <laughs> you know, it it kind of makes sense to me. It really does strike me as this game where like it almost takes the history and represents it in such a way that you can go back and enjoy it. You can feel excited about what new iteration this might be, or you could just take it on its face as is, and it's perfectly entertaining. If you know nothing about Sonic, you don't need to know anything about it. You don't need to have these these like retro connections, nostalgia connections. I'll play all the rehash stages they want me to for more of those stage transitions. Oh my god! Mm, yep. Yeah, Ugh. I should add that the uh, the UI in this game should be illegal for how beautiful it is. <laughs> you you must put beauty in a cage. Before we actually review the game itself and talk about should you play it, et cetera, et cetera. We've talked about a lot about nostalgia here today. Do you feel like you have like your own personal relationship to nostalgia that you've had to like consider or work out? I feel like this is such a thing among people that play old games, but they have ten they have a tendency to have a, a relationship with their old art that's very personal. For me, nostalgia is a thing that I actively work against and hate. If I find myself being overly nostalgic about something, I almost feel a, a, an active interest to like get my hands on that thing with the new eyes, with new perspective, you know, as I am now, because I often find that my nostalgia just doesn't really scan. 
uh, nostalgia that way. For I think for a lot of people, it's very comforting. Yeah, yeah. I think I'm in. I think I'm in that camp where it's like the games that I had myself were like um, I had I had seven Super Nintendo games, which is which is was decent. Sure. But like I didn't have another system myself until I bought a I had like drove to like buy a used Dreamcast in like 2006. Mm. I think like so you know like i'd have a dream that i owned contra 3 and then wake up and be disappointed <laughs> like that kind of thing so like i think my my approach to nostalgia has been like just collecting ways to play these games it's just like hoarding things like a pack rat and then <laughs> and then the other part of it is like trying to like get like trying to is it has been falling into that like video signal trap of like trying to use the original controller original hardware but get that clean hdmi out and like maybe then you yeah, know like yeah 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 <laughs> <laughs> just trying to smooth out the nostalgia as much as possible so it's actually pleasant <laughs> but i'm fully aware of it and i'll and i'll write i'll write it to the grave <laughs> <laughs> fucking hero love it mike you know i had an interesting experience kind of i wasn't pursuing nostalgia i should say this kind of put it into sharp relief for me <laughs> so before i turned 24 when i was younger i kind of thought like you know i like, like, what age would you like to jump ahead to in your life? It's like a question to ask in school. And I thought, like, I'm oh, 24. Like, I think I'd have things figured out by then, which is, you know, obviously ridiculous now yeah. to imagine. Mm -hmm. Even without regarding that, you know, there was a recession when I turned 24. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, to, all of our, but, to all of our younger audience, I'm sorry, we're not being condescending. Our, my brain at 24 was bad. Just throw that out there. Yeah. I mean, I meet mean, friends who like when they're like, "Wow, I finally turned 18." I'm like, "What the fuck? Like you? Why are you so smart? Don't do that. Stop. <laughs> Say something completely bullshit that I'm like, ah, oh, there, kid. But you don't do that. I know. You haven't done it yet. I know. It's your lie. It's the curse of the old. Uh, when that happened, I kind of just was in crisis as a result of like not realizing how subconsciously I built it up. Mm. My girlfriend at the time had coordinated with my brother on getting me a gift. And she'd gone to a used game store and got me a Dreamcast, because I always talked about how much I liked the Dreamcast when I played it when I was younger, mm. and some games. The thing is, since I wasn't, like, successful at, like, work or anything, I couldn't afford a PS3, so the newest console I had was a PS2. Mm. So it's like, hey, here's a throwback to a time years ago, and also the most, like, the newest console you can afford existed at the same time as this throwback <laughs> from years ago. And I just, just like, I don't want to play Dreamcast games at this point in my life right now. Absolutely not. Like, she's like, she's returning it to the game store. I'm like, I just, I'm sorry. I can't do this. <laughs> you know, and like, I don't have the emotional bandwidth <laughs> for Dreamcast. <laughs> I should say, we ended up doing other stuff. I didn't just, like, get the shit out of here. You know? like, I, yeah. I immediately dunked it into a trash can and then did a, a touchdown dance. But then at this point in my life, you know, I'm like, I got a handheld that can play Dreamcast games. I'm like, and not even, you know, rather imperfectly, but this is so cool. Like, I never would have imagined this. Yeah. And that's kind of, like, that's how I don't generally like, play any retro games in the format that you know, they were intended to, if I can help it. Like, if I could play all PS2 games portably, I doubt I'd have a PS2 collection. Yeah, for sure. But, you know, by that same token, I also, like, like, I did reacquire copies of PS2 games I had sold, like, 
within this year and the previous year mm. that I'd beaten and I sold because I'm like, I don't think I'll ever play this again. Because, I mean, one, because I maybe assumed emulation would just be, like, blazing ahead and PS2 emulation would be perfect in everywhere now, and it's not. No, it's so bad. I guess I just realized, like, this this object, like, I, I do have a connection to it, and, like, having it as, like, a ROM file isn't, like, I have Castlevania Lament of Innocence on my PS3. Mm. I can play it anytime. But I got a physical copy because my, like, experience with that game is based on, like, I'm the person who read the manuals for those games. Mm. So I always made sure to get a manual with it, inevitably intertwined with it for me. Yeah, for sure. And also, old games don't have tutorials, so I don't know how... Like, when people play, like, ROMs without manuals, I'm like, how would you ever figure this out? I'm like, well, there's a whole book. They wrote a book about it. <laughs> it was pretty short, but, you know. I think that your experience there, where you were talking about kind of, like, the PS2 being the, the most recent system you could afford at the time, that really struck a chord with me. I worked in retro game stores and GameStop for basically like seven years of my 20s um, mm -hmm. and in three different locations. So there was like a hoity-twitty neighborhood and there was kind of a blue-collar neighborhood and then there was a mall. When you're at GameStop, you're, you're really encouraged to like get those pre-orders for those new upcoming games. How few people gave a shit like, for, for lack of a better way to put it, it was not my experience that the vast majority of the video game playing audience is there spending the the MSRP on a brand new game on the day that it came out. That's really not like how most people encounter these things. They encounter them when they're cheap. They rent them. They 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 see them with a friend. The impermanence of of that is is so I don't know. It's something I feel is very ingrained in us from gaming culture, but it doesn't really reflect how people actually play games. Most people play older games. Most people have good relationships with older games. I bet you most people fifty sixty uh, that had a like an an NES or something when they were younger probably still have it in an attic somewhere. Mm -hmm. It's it's not my experience mm -hmm. that people only buy brand new shiny stuff. In fact, it's it's kind of the opposite. 90% of my transactions were for used PS2 games in 20, 2010, 2011, you know? I think you're touching on something there. But I mean, I also do pursue, like, some other games because of sort of a... It was a combination of, like, that nostalgia, but also there's things about those games I didn't realize at the time. Like, if that's the newest game you played at the time, you just say, oh, the later one's probably this, but better. Mm -hmm. And like that's that's true for a lot of long running game series too, where it's easy to think a later one's just better. The funniest one for me was Romance of the Three Kingdoms. Talk about a game series that people think looks the same all the time. Oh my god, yes. Oh my god, Sid. even for me, I look at that. I'm like, so these games just like have to just be the latest one is the best one, right? No, because it's a game like focused mostly on menus and stuff. Not the case at no. all. But then the problem is you look at the franchise, and because of people's nostalgic relationships to these games. Every Romance of Three Kingdoms game, that one's the best one and all the other ones suck. Like, people think it's bad for Final Fantasy. Like, those games are at least pretty different from each other. But Romance of Three Kingdoms, like, this game appears to be menus, and this other game also appears to be menus, still have that level of division. Like, oh that's how strong that, like, nostalgic, like, experience can go towards how you relate to a game. Yeah, yeah. And I think that, like, Romance is a great example because I love that series, and I will fight to the death that 8 is good and 9 is bad. I can't tell you why, other than the fact that one of those games had like more multiplayer options, and I, I really enjoyed playing the multiplayer, so it was that personal experience that really defined the game for me. Yeah, I actually bought uh, 8 and 9. Ooh! <laughs> because 9, a lot of fans said, this is not 
like involved enough. It's like way simplified from the previous games. But for me, who like considered getting into those games for a while and then backed off because I thought it was too complicated, I'm like, oh, the one that people ding for being too simple will still be complicated for me. Yes. <laughs> so this is a great place to get into this. Yes. And then I'll play eight afterwards because it's more complicated. Yes. Yes. <laughs> it's totally a thing. You you had kind of an idea you threw out there that I was gonna that I was gonna like mentioned earlier about about nostalgia where it's like i think the important distinction when you're like trying to like figure out your relationship with nostalgia is like you can chase after like the ex like the experiences and like the relationship that you had with a piece of media as long as you like understand that like that media isn't like defined by your relationship yes. with it yeah like, yes the biggest example i can think of is like, like i always talk to people about like they like you know the people that really liked GoldenEye multiplayer, and I'm yeah. like, I'm like, yo, you ever tried Perfect Dark multiplayer? And like, it has all of the stuff yeah, <laughs> from GoldenEye, and like, it's like it's got like the same levels, like the guns are the guns you love are there, like <laughs> you know we could play that. It's like no, I just like GoldenEye. Like GoldenEye was the best because it's the first, yeah. and I'm like, mm. <laughs> yeah, the like, game okay. runs like past eight FPS, and you're like, what the fuck is this? I can't. <laughs> My wife and I have like this like ongoing thing where it's like she's like Donkey Kong Country or Country One is the best, and I'm like, I mean, okay, but I'm like, like yo, how about you give two a try? No, why would I? The first one's the best. She she does it just to make me angry. But like. <laughs> I like that distinction though too because I think there's a distinction between wanting to sort out your own personal relationship with nostalgia and just going into games history a little bit because it, going into games history without a personal relationship can be so rewarding. I think a good example would be like the games that we played on stream together, like LSD, for instance. That's that's not a, that's a 20 year old game. That's not nostalgia. There's no retro experience in that for me. I literally can't do that anywhere else. There's no other game that does the same thing. So, you know, it, 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 there is a distinction between these things, and it really is about your personal relationship. And that's it. That's an example where I don't think I would have appreciated that game if I'd played it when it came Yeah. Oh, God, oh, no, no, God, no, no way. God, no. The PS1 era, too, like, there's so many games, too, that there's a temptation to go back just because the discussions of the time, well, something being new could create a lot of positive nostalgic experiences. You also are victim to a lot of sort of attitudes of the time in a negative sense, yes. such as this game doesn't have the most cutting-edge PS1 graphics when at this point in history you look back and like well they're all like triangle people with like smooth texture faces that don't look very good so <laughs> this one being less cutting edge is not really a factor in how i approach it now. yeah exactly and th th there's sort of there's all these elements recency bias etc but like for fuck's sake we don't have to pretend that we're like all video game journalists or whatever even when we have podcasts like i i enjoy a game like lsd because it's interesting to me whether or not it's worth talking about, I don't really give a shit. I'm going to talk about it anyway. Like, <laughs> it's not up for me to decide. Uh, there's something that Daniel Barry always said that I, that I quite liked about games and communities, which is that games are a form of communication between the developer and the player. Mm. And I would say that fandom is the same thing, but it's, it's, it's a relationship between people who in, entertain the same art. So, like, your opinion or whatever on any given game is just your way of interacting with the world socially around that thing. And as long as you see that as an open line of communication, there's no real good or bad. There's just who likes what and what appeals to them. But, you know, if you catch yourself liking weird things or having weird opinions, it might just be that nostalgia catching up on you. 
As you know, we always do game reviews on this show and we save the best part for last. You're going to hear whether or not we liked Sonic Mania or think it's worth talking about. <laughs> but, but if you, for instance, wanted to see us playing some of these fan games and ROM hacks, uh, you could head on over to our Twitch page. That's twitch.tv backslash game crimes. And you can see our regular streams where we play the games we review. We played Sonic Mania, but we also played a number of Sonic ROM hacks that we're just not going to get into here. Ballpark, like, should people look into this game? Just period. Is it worth it on its own merits? I mean, I'd say absolutely, because for me, I mentioned earlier how I need a platformer to, like, constantly feed me novelty. Yeah. <laughs> That's why I like new tile sets and new music constantly. And Sonic Mania, like, takes that advantage of the Sonic series and amplifies it way further out. I don't regularly play platformers, so even if you don't enjoy them, I mean, Sonic's atypicality might actually be a good reason for you to try it. Like, if you don't like platformers, maybe you'll like this one because Kirby and, and Mega Man and Mario are not like this game. No, no, that's that's a good point. Yeah, for sure. I don't think that there's a, there's been any, like, any other games out there that have successfully mimicked the style of gameplay that Sonic does? I mean, maybe Uniracers, but Pixar. <laughs> kind of. I'm I'm a big fan of like games that like do that like 16 bit, uh, 16 bit or 8 bit like that retro art style. Like they're faithful, but then they like take liberties with the with the like limitations of the hardware. Mm -hmm. Um, they take advantage that they that they don't have those limitations, and and it's. It looks like this is what would have been done on Genesis if, if they were able. Mm. It's just a really pretty, really well-designed game in its own right, even if you've never heard of Sonic before. Yes, yes. That I would absolutely say you, you should check out. I would echo those sentiments. This game is excellent from head to toe. The physics feel great. The level design is A+. Uh, I'm not a Sonic fanatic. I've, I've heard that I like the bad Sonic games, apparently. Um, <laughs> but... I really enjoy this kind of game. I play a lot of platformers. It's it's generally my favorite style of game to play. And I would say one of the reasons why I picked this uh, this game to talk about, this is my favorite of any of the, like, the retro aesthetic games of like, the past 10 years, easily. Mm -hmm. I am very picky when it comes to those retro aesthetic games because older games have a feel. And if you're not getting those like jump timings right or physical gravity right, they feel off. This game, like, congeals with my memory and my feelings of what Sonic is supposed to be like. And then is constantly introducing new ideas, things that I don't expect, fresh mechanics. Like Sid said, it's it's a roller coaster of novelty. New things all the time, forever. One thing I'd also like to praise this game on that I'm, I think probably comes through in the design that we're talking about. This game is super playful. Like, it doesn't take itself seriously. There's a boss fight where you literally just do like Tetris, Puyo Puyo puzzle games. Um, like, I, I don't know. This game feels like they had a lot of fun making it for like a better way to put it. Yeah. I, one, one thing that you, you kind of like kind of sparked this in my brain is like these kind of games, um, like new retro games do really well when they like they play off your nostalgia. And it's it's like when you when you try and remember, say you haven't played Genesis games since they were new this is how you probably remember it looking mm. and playing, mm. you know, and it, and it, and it didn't, but you got those nostalgia glasses <laughs> and, and a successful game will take that and like, and make it look the way you remember mm. it. Like this is a really specific thing, but I remember when I played Sonic games, like either fan games or anything that was after like the Genesis era, I always thought, Oh, when Sonic ran on loops, like he rotated so smoothly, like on the loop, and it was perfect. Now, like, when I looked at footage of it more recently, like, 
No, he like rotates in these specific like forty five degree yes. angles of his wrapping. <laughs> yeah. But it's just it was going fast on a CRT monitor, so it looked smooth to me. Yeah. And so actually those games had Genesis didn't better. support rotating sprites, incidentally. <laughs> and it had those like, yeah, it had those better, technically better, but like a more obvious rotation for a while. But now this one has enough rotation that it looks like I remember it looking. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's a weird feeling, right? To try to be syncing that in your memory while you're playing. <laughs> yeah. But also the the spec of the game is very interesting because the sort of way that the graphics target was described was if they'd released a 2D Sonic game on the Sega Saturn. Oh. Which, like, Sega would not have done at the time. I mean, everyone was pushing 3D. Like, it would have not... Like, people would think it was dated, even if it was really good. Yes. I mean, the fact that the Saturn was especially good at 2D games was seen as a negative at the time. Yes. But by that same token, you look at a lot of 2D Saturn games, and when you talk about retro games like holding up a lot of 2d on saturn games looks fantastic oh baby <laughs> so yeah pursuing 2d saturn as your aesthetic now means you're making a really good looking game like if it doesn't look good then it doesn't look it no longer meets that spec it's now just you know an snes game or a genesis game yes uh, and the closest thing that we have to it is probably sonic cd on the second cd look wise um mm -hmm. and sprite wise this game blows that thing out of the water visually. I mean, the colors, there's such a broader color range. The animation is so much more detailed. The Even just like the level assets feel a little more classically Sonic. And to say that like they use the aesthetics of the old game, but in such a way that they're not identical. One thing that we haven't touched on yet is Sonic is pretty famous for having absolute bang in soundtrack. Mm -hmm. And this game is absolutely right up there for me i think this game soundtrack is incredible yeah i remember when they, they um first released the track for studiopolis zone act one yes. oh. <laughs> at pursuing that saturn level of audio quality i'm like this doesn't remind me of a sonic game i've played but if you said this is Sonic on the sega saturn like this is what that would sound like yes <laughs> that use of like synth brass and like more obvious like non-harsh synth tones like because the, the strength of the fm sound chip is like harsh tones like really good chunky bass sounds mm -hmm. and, and you know, sort of like glassy tones stuff like that but like horns on the genesis like when people say oh it sounds like farts like that's that's that yeah yep. that's what that yep. is uh but here like you know like the horn sound like yeah this reminds me of music in like daytona usa or virtua fighter yes even the remixes seem to be reminiscent of the more like Eurobeat style they were pursuing in the 2000s and the early 90s, mm -hmm. late 90s that you can see in things like, like all of those like Dreamcast racing games all have just like Eurobeat soundtracks by Richard Jakes or remixes by Richard Jakes or, you know. Mm -hmm. While we're speaking about the, the beauty of Sonic Mania, it is of course made by fans, right? It's made by these, these two Sonic I think maybe three or four actual Sonic fan game developers. This is like a, a mind meld between what I think these Sonic communities have been expecting for a Sonic game. And I, overall, I would say the general reception matches that, right? This game is beloved. Oh, yeah. Like, really, like when I said, like, people's complaints is that they wish there were more new levels because <laughs> they really like them. Yeah. <laughs> and they do like the game. They're not going to like, and now I also think my opinion on Green Hill Zone is lowered significantly in the time since I last played it. Like... <laughs> But and that's like still really high price. <laughs> that's not the kind of complaint like when people say a bad Sonic game. People are just like, oh, so all the levels are bad. Yes. <laughs> well, I guess let's let's give the verdict, folks. Uh, should people play Sonic Mania? Simply yes or no answer. Yes. Yes.
No. Whoa. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but after all the praise, just like, no. <laughs> can't no, put my stamp on it. Sorry. It's too good. You don't deserve to play. <laughs> if you think Sonic sucks, get the fuck out of here. <laughs> this kind of bullshit, Mike, is why you are not Chicago's favorite son. <laughs> I did have a I I had an altercation with a with a kid in my uh in in a like an intro programming class at community college some years back uh, <laughs> where he he I I overheard him I overheard him on the phone um debating his like uh, debating the customer service for, uh, about his uh, Sonic comic subscription being delivered to the wrong address and used it to open a dialogue about uh, the history of Sonic games. And I happened to suggest that I didn't like one of the games. And he looked at me like with the eyes of a man who was ready to get into a fist fight, said, don't talk shit about Sonic. <laughs> wow. And that man grew up to be Mike Bachman. <laughs> and that man was Steve Jobs. <laughs> yeah, it's funny to look back on him. Um on how people talked about Sega, because, I mean, that the college bro crowd, you know, I mentioned I had a Sega Dreamcast, and one kid was like, oh, of course you had a gay-ass system like the Dreamcast. Oh, God. Sonic's gay. And now it's like, that's actually true, and that's why it's so good. <laughs> you know what we have now? Taste. You know what you had? Resistance Fall of Man. <laughs> There's a saying in the queer and trans community, which is that, like, you find each other. And I think it's the same thing for Dreamcast people. You're just a bunch of fucking weird freaks online and you're all gay. Yeah, 90% of my friends happen to be lesbians. Like, as a Sega fan, this is great because that means it's another thing I have in common with 90% of my friends. <laughs> I never understood that until I started transitioning that there's a lesbian to Sega Pipeline. Thank you, everybody, for joining us on this very unique and very interesting episode of Game Crimes. I hope everybody enjoyed it, and I want to give special thanks to our guest. But before I do that, I have to selfishly plug my own shit. The fact of the matter is I host a real play podcast called Weird Adventures in Space. It is fun. There's superhero stuff. There's lots of crazy sci-fi ideas. Uh, it's gay. You might like that. There is no Sonic the Hedgehog, unfortunately. But if that's the sort of thing you're into, you can hop on over to SHU Podcast and give us some attention. Otherwise, you can find me on Twitter at underscore J-A-Y-H-I-5. Mike, do you have anything to plug? Yeah, you know what? I'm going to I'm gonna do something ill-advised and plug something that that's not out yet and I can't really talk about. But <laughs> please, for the love of God... <laughs> Follow to just subscribe to that that uh, review whole YouTube channel. Oh my god! Because I've got something I've been working on for for about four months now. It doesn't warrant the amount of effort that I put into it, but if if nobody sees this and tells me that I have value as a person because I made it, <laughs> uh, it, it I don't I don't know what I'm gonna do with myself. But that is uh that is review hole. You can follow it on Twitter at review hole. I'm at the Mike Bachman. And I, can, I would like to say I have. Is it fair to say I've been in on the creative process of review hole since the start? Oh, from start to finish. You have sure. put my brain inside a toaster oven, my friend. Oh my god, it's broken. Me. <laughs> All right, and of course, we were joined by a special guest, Sid, Sid Menon. I mean, you're on here because you have a podcast, but I mean, I'm sure you have other things going on. If you want to plug, plug away, my friend. So I'm on Twitter at BeamsplashX. Uh, can you tell I came up with in middle school? I don't know. Can you? Uh, no, it's not a Mega Man reference. And uh, then originally it was a bunch of numbers, but I forgot my Hotmail password because I was like really young. Uh, so I 
created it again as Beam Splash X, and that account name's not been taken on any website I've signed up for. I do a lot of tweets on there. I, it's Best like tweets. mostly jokes. Good, you, good tweets. <laughs> I mean, my brain's just like background processing weird connections to stuff <laughs> all the time. In addition to that, I also will like tweet about a game I'm playing. You know, I, I'm playing Neo 2 right now, so I'm just posting screenshots where I'm doing a cool pose with two swords in front of like a statue of the Buddha or something. So. <laughs> but also like I did like a 30 tweet thread when I finished uh, Xenoblade Chronicles for the first time. Mm. A lot, yeah, a lot to scroll through. I also, I do that podcast again, one to two episodes a year. So last year I did one episode and then I'm like, I need to play video games forever <laughs> until I'm ready to do it. <laughs> So once I, yeah, I mean, once I finish Neo 2, that's what I'm going to finally start on the next episode. Oh. Uh, but yeah. So uh, the name of that again yeah. is? Is We Thought About Games. We Thought About Games. And tell, let me tell you, folks, if you haven't played these games, it doesn't fucking matter. Like, <laughs> like uh, as someone who yeah. didn't play the vast majority of them, I've listened to every episode of your show, and I enjoyed just the conversation. It's very much about the people, which I appreciate. Yeah. And also, just follow him online. He's funnier than me, for fuck's sake. But but real talk, so thank you for coming and thanks for having us. Like, we we don't really talk or anything before we did this. So I just kind of reached out on a limb and thought, I don't know, maybe. I, I gotta say, you didn't know this about me, but uh, I had a friend uh, who I was on his podcast a couple of times. And I'm just like, oh my god, I get to I do prep, which, you know, I like. And I get to be in the conversation on podcasts, which I love. Then I don't have to edit it, which is the part I hate, which is another reason why there's only two episodes a year of my podcast. <laughs> <laughs> it's not my job. I'm not going to have a release schedule. Yes. Get out of here. yes. That's the correct mood, by the way. <laughs> I would like to say adieu, farewell. Now, of course, like, you could always, I don't know, hop on these podcasting platforms, give us a few stars. My, my Alaska accent came out there. Platforms. Platforms. But in the meantime, our mid-season stretch on the role of communities in games is going long. Next episode, the Saudi royal family and the Ness Corporation present Game Crimes Episode 7, Zombie Companies and the Cult of Neo Geo. Thanks for listening.